This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Let me pray for us as we continue. Father, as we just sung and prayed to you, we ask that you would speak, that you would use your word to Open our eyes. If there are some here who do not know you, introduce yourself, we pray to them. Give them hearts to believe that salvation is available in Jesus Christ, that forgiveness of sins is available in Jesus Christ, that eternal life comes through no one else but him. No one else has satisfied the wrath of God. No one else has provided a righteousness that can be worn before you without shame. And so we pray for faith to those who are here that do not believe. And for those who do, we pray for more faith. Deepen us, grow us through your word. And in particular, help us to be submissive and prayerful of and honoring of those authorities that you would put over us in the church. Remind us to pray for them, to support them, to receive from them, and for those who are appointed to lead, we pray for your mercy upon us. We pray for your grace upon us, that we would represent Christ, not ourselves, that we would reflect Jesus, not ourselves that your church would be built up. That is our prayer this morning. That is our prayer every day until Christ returns. In his name, amen. Well, when Ruth and I and the kids moved here a year ago, we moved here from a farm. And on that farm, we had cows. On that farm, we had chickens. We had pigs. We had goats. We had little baby kid goats and dogs and cats. And every day, we had to care for animals. Every day, we had to feed flocks. Every day, we had to watch over them. And if there were injuries, we had to mend. If there were dangers, we had to protect. We had to feed every day. And if ever we left, we couldn't just leave it unattended. We had to leave it to someone to care for them to feed them, and to protect them. We had one particular goat that our kids most adored. They named her Muffin. She was like a little puppy dog. She would just sit in your lap if she could. I don't think she knew what she was. She was like a little labradoodle. 
And she got pregnant. We were breeding these goats, and she was pregnant. And one night, near delivery time, a mountain lion climbed our fences, got into where she was. And when I found her the next morning, it was just the shell of a body, just the outer skin and the rib cage laid open, all the organs gone, the babies that were in her gone, just picked clean. And that image, I don't think it'll ever leave my mind, especially when I read that Satan prowls around First Peter 5 like a lion looking for someone to devour. He loves to stir false teachers and bring false teaching into the church to consume the flock, to extinguish the faith of those that God is calling his own. Paul says that the church, like a flock, there will be fierce wolves who will come in not sparing the flock, Acts 20, 29. So one of the things we encountered, if you have chickens, we had chickens out on this farm, and if a raccoon, the last thing you wanted in your chicken shed was a raccoon, because they don't just come in to eat, they come in to kill. So there's some animals that will come in and they will just eat until they're done and then they're gone. Not a raccoon. A raccoon is bloodthirsty. It will kill every bird in your shed, whether it's hungry or not. That's how Satan is, trying to consume the sheep, feed lies to the sheep, arouse rebellion and conflict and division and faithlessness in the sheep to drive us to hear and follow shepherds other than the true shepherd. And so like every flock, the people of God need faithful shepherds. The people of God need human bodies, human voices through which God can shepherd his people. And so our passage for this morning assumes that to be true, assumes we need help believing and obeying and walking with Jesus Christ. Verse 5, this is why I left you in Crete, Paul said to Titus, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. That a critical part of Titus putting things in order in the church is to appoint elders in every town. That everywhere God had planted a church, there needed to be elders, or the Greek word here, presbyteros, leading that congregation. And so this is one passage that guides our thinking as a church about how we order things. That we believe is As God spoke through Paul here, this is what it means to set things in order. We believe, okay, this applies to us. This is how we are to set things in order. There needs to be presbyteros, or to use another word, episcope, which is the word he uses in verse 7. For an overseer, episcope, as God's steward, must be above reproach. That's also the word that Paul's going to use when he writes to Timothy. A parallel passage to this one is in 1 Timothy 3. He says, This saying is trustworthy if anyone aspires to the office of episcope. He desires a noble task. Therefore, an episcope must be above reproach. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? 
And so elders fill the office of overseer in order to respond to and fulfill God's design for the church. So here's our main point for this morning. The church belongs to God. A household and people over which Christ is head and king. And he has designed a certain kind of leadership for the church and delegated that leadership to certain kinds of men and determined a certain way for those men to lead the church for the spiritual health and eternal good of the church. And so elders fill a specific office of overseer in order to care for God's church along with fellow elders who together shepherd what Peter in 1 Peter 5 calls the flock of God. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not dominating over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So here again, elders, as part of the flock, are appointed by God to shepherd as under shepherds beneath Christ the flock of God. And so apparently having no leaders is not a viable option. There are churches that will try. Let's just have no leaders. God doesn't leave us that option. Or developing our own system of order and leadership in the church is not a viable option either since God has chosen us are chosen for us how to order and set in order his household and how to lead it. So think for a minute, just imagine if you're about to leave your, your house for the week and you've got kids or whoever's there and you find a group of people to watch over your household while you're gone. You're gonna go away for a month. You've got animals, you've got your kids, you've got whatever else there and they're gonna oversee your household while you're away. Do you think you'll have any specific instructions for them? If they ask you, well, what, what do you want us to do? How, what has to happen for the household to run in order? Are you going to look at them and say, whatever, I don't care? Or are you even just going to leave your kids there just untended, your property unwatched? Again, none of us would. We all understand and get what God is doing here. Because anyone who has people and belongings they, they care about sort of put those items under the watch of leaders, those who will care well for them. So now consider the church where Christ is head and king. And he wants his household ordered in a certain way. And so we must either accept this as his will or set it up our own way. God's wisdom or my wisdom. 
And I think we'll find that throughout the book of Acts, that will be a question that keeps coming back to our minds. My wisdom or God's wisdom? My way or God's way? Do I really trust what God says? When we hear the word of God, do we trust it? Do we trust the one who breathed it? Especially when it doesn't make sense to us. Especially when that isn't naturally how we would want to do it. Are we willing to submit happily beneath it or do we think we know better? Because that's going to be a temptation. Do we find his ideas so antiquated, so out of touch, so outdated, so silly, so unfair that we really need to come up with a better way, a new model, a new system, whether that's for the church, whether that's for our homes, whether that's for our lives. So I think there will be opportunities in the weeks ahead to try to make the word of God say what we want to say, want it to say, or narrow its meaning so narrowly that it really can't apply. And today we'll face that first opportunity. What kind of leadership has God assigned for the health and stewardship of the church? What kind of men does he want for that office? What kind of work has he assigned to that office? And so what we're going to do now is just look at four points from this passage. The identity of the overseer is God's steward. The character of the overseer as to be above reproach, the confidence of the overseer, the word, and the work of the overseer to care and to teach and to guard. So the identity of the overseer as God's steward. I think everything Paul says about elders in this passage hinges upon that phrase in verse 7, as God's steward. Look there at verse 7. For an overseer as God's steward. That's how God views elders as overseers in the church. Stewards, managers, caretakers of his possession and his household. That's ridiculously important. It's terrifying and humbling, especially if you're an elder, or especially if you aspire to be an elder that the elders of Delray Baptist Church have been entrusted with the personal and very precious property of God's household. And what are those possessions? Well, you, we are those possessions. The author of Hebrews wrote, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Hebrews 13, 7. That's a serious statement. Elders are entrusted with the care of redeemed souls, and they will give an account to God himself for how they care for those souls. That's why from time to time you'll have elders ask you how you're doing and really want to know. That's why we'll ask sort of intrusive questions. 
That's why if we don't see you around for a little while, we'll give you a loving phone call. That's why we're gonna pray for you by God's grace and fast for you by God's grace and teach you by God's grace and reprove you by God's grace and exhort you, appeal to you, comfort you, whatever else the Lord would assign for the sake of our souls. Because a day is coming where Garrett Kell and Ben Hamilton and Eric Butterball and Mark Butman and John Henderson will stand before the Lord and give an account. I've wondered sometimes, is there sort of a holding room when we get to heaven that for pastors and elders that we kind of show up and we have to wait off to the side till all of you get there? And then we just have an inspection time. <laughs> and just to imagine that moment as God looks out over those that have been entrusted to us to see in, in what condition are we delivering them. If you can imagine a day where some young man shows up at your door asking to take your, young da- your daughter on a date. Young daughter, I mean, you know, 28, 29 years old, you know, first date. <laughs> and he wants to take her out and... And if you ask, do you have any sort of instructions for me? Would you have any? If he says, when do you want her back? You would say, soon. You'd probably give a time. In what condition do you want her in? This condition. The condition in which she's in. Or better. And if your lips have to touch her lips, it better be for CPR or something. <laughs> you know. There would be specific things you would say. And why is God less holy than us? How is it he cares less for his children? Less for the bride of Christ that's being prepared for her wedding day. And now she is entrusted to stewards who are to keep watch over her, care for her. Wash her with the word that Christ has given so that on that day, Christ can be presented with her and even present her as a spotless bride. Acts 20, 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all your flock. This is Paul talking to the elders of Ephesus. In which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. Whoa. The church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. God's household, God's children, God's flock, God's possession, God's temple filled with God's spirit that God and his word leave us to no other conclusion but that the church belongs to God. Christ purchased her with his blood. He cares about her. He cares about her health and protection. So if any elder desires the position of elder for the sake of power or control or applause or money or significance, then we have completely missed the point. because the requirements and costs of leading the flock of Christ are incredibly clear and weighty. 
Christ bought the church with his blood and charges elders to watch over her and care for her until he returns. Under shepherds of Christ, slaves of Christ, stewards of God's precious possession. It also means that we're stewards of the gospel. We are stewards of the manifold riches of God that are in Christ. But we'll get to that in point three. So based on the fact that the overseers and the elders are God's stewards, I think it leads to an inevitable question, what does it take then to be God's steward? And this brings us to point two. The character of the overseer is to be above reproach. Look at verse six. If anyone is above reproach, verse seven, for an overseer is God's steward, must be above reproach. And what that means is he is above disgrace. He is blameless. But this doesn't mean sinless because then there would be no elders at all. Only Christ who reigns in heaven could be an elder of any church. So what above reproach means is it sort of summarizes the overall pattern of this man's life as being what he's about to describe that it is, not arrogant, humble. He deals with his sin in a humble, God-dependent, honest way. He lives faithfully and soberly and sort of in an ever-growing in holiness way. And this is also why we need elders, plural, not singular. Elders are accountable to one another. They're part of the flock. And they even shepherd one another in the flock. They submit to one another. They are under Christ together and mutually under one another. And so they confess sin to one another and pray for one another. That's part of our every time we gather as elders is a time to share weaknesses and sins and troubles and pray for one another. And so we don't keep watch over the souls of God's people without our own souls being kept watch of. They're dependent upon the Lord Jesus Christ, men. And so all that is summarized in this phrase, above reproach. Firstly, at home, says the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery and insubordination. What that means is at home, an elder is a, is a one-woman man. That's the literal meaning. And so we have to be careful not to impose sort of a wrongly rigid interpretation on passages like these because an elder doesn't have to be married at all. Or an elder can be married and his wife die, the Lord take her home, and then him remarry and that not disqualify him from being an elder. What he means is he's faithful to the wife that he's been given. He's not to have multiple wives, which was not uncommon in the time in which Paul was reading, writing this. He's not to trade in one wife for another, as even we read was common in Ezra's day. In Ezra 10, where that's something they're dealing with, where these leaders of God's household were, were just trading in their wives for other women. And especially when we consider the fact that elders actually assume the role of caring for the bride of Christ. 
So what Paul is saying there is, is if he's going to care for the bride of Christ, who are many, how can he do that if he cannot first be faithful to his own wife, who is one? In a similar way, elders manage their household well. If they have children, they love them. They teach them. They train them. They encourage them. They pray for them. They pray with them. They enjoy them. But again, none of this is perfectly. It's with the awareness of how poorly sometimes we love them, how poorly we teach them, how poorly we train them, how much we depend upon the grace of God each and every day to be faithful to this task. And so the word here translated believers does not mean regenerate. It means faithful, which is another way to translate that Greek word. They're faithful. So again, we don't want to sort of impose a wrongly sort of rigid interpretation to the text. Regeneration is a work of the Holy Spirit, not an elder. And so in the same way that elders are not responsible for your regeneration, nor are we responsible for the regeneration of our children, but what we are responsible of is preaching and proclaiming the gospel, teaching the word, putting all the raw material in place for the Holy Spirit, if he wills, to bring about new birth. And so he prays for their salvation, teaches the word of God in the home, but yet knowing that he can't grant them new life in Christ, which is why we should pray like crazy every day. Because we realize this is a work of God. So when Paul says believers, he means what he goes on to say in this text, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. In other words, they're not running wild and unaddressed and unchecked and untaught and uncared for. Here's how Paul said it to Timothy. He, meaning an elder, must manage his own household well with all dignity keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? So there will be moments in the home of every elder where things don't look good. If if you want to know, just come over, you know. We'll bring you over for a meal. That's all it should take for you to realize that there's just moments where things look out of control, moments where there's just sin on the walls. So the mark of the elder isn't that there's sinlessness in the home. It's what does he do then? Does he handle it, in Paul's words, with all dignity? Does he respond with prayerful, humble, gospel grace and discipline or does he explode threaten beat is he cruel in his words or does he just quit and leave because again an elder is entrusted with the precious children of God who are many who struggle themselves with sin with weakness with trouble with learning to grow in grace. And so if an elder isn't responding consistent with the gospel to his own children who are few, then how can he be asked to or expected to in the household of God? That's Paul's point. That's what he's getting at. 
And this is where Paul takes us next. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. And so this is not an exhaustive list. I think Paul is giving us a representative list because there's lots of other passages in the Scripture where there's other lists. What Paul's trying to do is sort of give us an idea that this is a man who is controlled by the Spirit of God, who's controlled in some way and submitted to the Word of God, who God is using as his representative. Because in another way, this is something that really is to mark every man and woman in the church. So he's not just also giving sort of a a representative picture of just what only elders are to be because it's not that someone who isn't an elder should look and go, well, I guess I can be arrogant or quick-tempered or greedy for gain. No, really, Paul's giving a representative list of here's what an elder should be as an exemplar to the flock, as an example Like the Old Testament high priest who, Hebrews 5 says, was himself beset with weakness. But because of that reason, he could deal gently and humbly with those who came and needed help. And so while we cannot have leaders over the household of God who are arrogant or quick-tempered or drunk or violent, We also can't have elders over the household of God that don't think in the back of their minds this isn't a possibility (laughs) if we do not, in fact, walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so arrogant refers to how he relates to success, how he relates to position of leadership as a recipient of grace. Not quick-tempered refers to how he relates to failure. It's not arrogant with success, not quick-tempered when things go wrong, and they will go wrong, but rather responds with patient humility, not a drunkard, which refers to how he relates to created things, with sensibility and grace-given freedom. So we can't imagine it's only referring here to alcohol, but he's to be controlled by the Spirit, not created things. Not violent refers to how he relates to other people, especially those who dishonor him, especially those who resist him. That he can't, as Peter would say, be domineering over the flock. He can't be violent, whether that's at home or at the church or in the workplace. Cannot be greedy for gain, which refers to how he relates to the things that he does not have can't be covetous. But he must be hospitable, which refers to how he handles the things that he does have. So he can't be greedy about the things that he doesn't possess, but he also must be hospitable with the things he does possess. Because again, as God's steward, the elder realizes it's all God's. This is God's household, my home. is part of God's household. All has been given by grace. All belongs to him. The Lord gives and he takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. A lover of good, which refers to his genuine passion and overall pursuit in life. 
He loves good, not evil. Self-control, this refers to how he relates to the wrong things that he shouldn't do but would be inclined to do if unchecked. That when he has desires that are wrong desires, he again seeks the Holy Spirit to grant self-control, which is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Self-control. Upright refers to how he walks before the society in which he lives as one who is righteous and blameless before others. He's not a swindler. He's not a liar. He's not someone who has cheated people and schemed people and deceived people. But rather he walks in a way by God's grace that is upright before others. And holy, which refers to how he walks before God as holy unto God. And then disciplined, which refers to how he relates to the right things that he should do, that he maybe really doesn't want to do. So self-control refers to what do we do with wrong passions that we kind of want to do. But discipline is what we do with right passions that we'd rather not do. We must be disciplined. So the main point is this, that God's steward must live out the gospel he preaches. He cannot walk as a hypocrite. So it doesn't mean he can't walk and be a sinner. It means he's aware of that, and he's repentant in that, and he's crying out to God in that and confessing sin to others in that and walking in the power of the Holy Spirit, not his own strength. He must believe the truth he teaches. He must walk in the spirit he talks about. The word of God must lay firm hold of him so that he can keep firm hold of it, which is, brings us to our next point, that the confidence of the overseer is the word. So what Paul's just said is that confidence must be visible in the way he lives his life. But also he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. I love how Paul phrased it there, as taught, that men who want to teach and lead the church must first and always be taught by God and taught by the word of God and living life under that word. Teachers of the word must be men who live under that word. And so the primary confidence of the overseer is summarized in that phrase, hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. That's to be our confidence because our confidence is in the one who breathed it. We have no confidence in any other word but the word of God. The trustworthy word. That's what it's called. And that's why we hold firm to it. So if all of us one day were just sort of parachuted in a jungle and there we are in the middle of the Amazon or wherever, we don't know where, and I have the one and only map, how foolish would it be for me to start a fire with it to get warm? And if I use it to start a fire or stuff it to the bottom of my backpack, what I'm really saying is, I'll get us out. I know what to do. Just follow me this way. 
will make it. There's no other conclusion we can come to but that my confidence is not in the map that has been provided. My confidence is in my judgment, my ability. There's no other explanation. Or in the same way, if we're in a dark tunnel system beneath a city and there's no light, we can't see anything, and I have the one flashlight, the one lamp, what must that mean if I take it and throw it away or keep it in my pocket? but that my confidence is in my capacity to lead people in the dark. It's a claim to have sort of spiritual night vision, which God says we clearly do not have. This is 2 Peter 1, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts especially when we really think about the fact that we're not just leading people through tunnel systems and out of jungles. It's much worse than that. Spiritual blindness and darkness is much worse than that. And God has given a word from heaven that actually saves and sanctifies souls. God's given a word from heaven that says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. A word that says, but mankind has rebelled. Mankind has sinned and transgressed and now lives alienated from that God in darkness, enslaved to sin, and incapable of doing anything to release himself or anyone else from that bondage, incapable of saying anything or doing anything that will turn the lights on in their soul, and that the only hope is that God would send his son, Jesus Christ, the grace of God appearing in Jesus Christ to live that righteous life that we could not live, to satisfy God's wrath by dying on a cross as a payment for sin and raising from the grave as evidence that he was in fact sinless and the father was in fact pleased with his sacrifice. And he ascended into heaven and sent his Holy Spirit as now the power from on high that's going to open up hearts to believe that preached message, that in the name of Jesus Christ, you can be saved. That's why we preach that message here, because that is the light that the Spirit uses to turn the lights on. That is the power that God has appointed to loose chains, to reconcile people to God, And so for me to neglect that word and instead to preach myself or to preach whatever I have on my mind or to preach the front cover of the latest newspaper, what I'm saying is my capacity in words, my arrangement of words, my oratory can actually bring light to darkness, can actually free people enslaved to sin and reconcile them to God. Better to get up here and just read the Bible and sit down than preach another word. Which is both humbling but also really encouraging is to know that if all we really do is just read it to you, there's power in that. God can use that to save souls. There was a day where one of the Wesley, I think it was John Wesley, where Charles Whitfield, they were in all the revival meetings and going from town to town, and 
young Wesley was there and and Whitfield said to him, all right, it was like the day before, you know, the, the day of this revival meeting that night. And he said, okay, Wesley, you're, you're on tonight. You're preaching. And so Wesley was like, all right, this is going to be his first time. And so the meeting came around. There was a time of worship, a time of prayer. And it was Wesley's time to get up and stand. And he took his Bible up and he opened it. And he looked out and he said, ladies and gentlemen, I'm about to deliver to you the greatest sermon of all time. And people who were there said Whitfield looked over like, oh no. <laughs> and he opened his Bible to Matthew chapter 5 and he read Matthew 5, 6, and 7, closed his Bible and sat down. <laughs> That's confidence in the word of God. The greatest sermon, he said, of all time. I'm going to read it to you. We have that prophetic word made more sure. Brings us to our final point, and that is the work of the overseer to care and to teach and to guard. The primary work of the overseer is summarized in the statement so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. That leaders in the church are called to care for the flock, and they exercise that care by teaching sound doctrine and rebuking false doctrine even if that's reproving fellow elders, carefully, lovingly, humbly, in the right time, in the right way. But even if it's that, listen to this story. This is Galatians 2, where Paul says, but when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself fearing the circumcision party, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So the circumcision party believed that salvation by grace alone through faith alone was was not enough. You needed to throw some works in there as well, especially circumcision to be justified before God. And so the label circumcision party in one sense is just an efficient way of identifying those who would add something to salvation through faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ Jesus alone. And while Peter refuted that teaching on paper, his social withdrawal in that moment of time in Antioch sort of made this public declaration that he didn't really adhere to that fully in practice. And so Paul confronted Peter and a few others in front of everyone because they were not walking in step with the gospel. That's that's God-pleasing, not man-pleasing. That's understanding your work as an overseer And that's also what was needed in Crete because according here to Paul's words to Titus, the party of the circumcision 
Verse 10 was there as well, trying to set up shop, trying to add something to the grace of God as a means to be saved, something more than faith, but law. And so what they needed was elders who believed the gospel, lived out the gospel, preached the gospel to be left there over the churches in every city to refute that very kind of thinking, that very kind of teaching, to care for and teach and guard the flock of God. This was the pattern that Jesus Christ left for us. When he, Jesus, went ashore, this is Mark 6, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd and he began to teach them many things. So what defined the people of Israel in Jesus' day was a lack of good teaching and preaching from the Bible. What people got was a bunch of laws and traditions, man's ideas, sort of veiled in biblical language, maybe connected to a passage here or there. And so Jesus comes and sees them and has compassion as people like sheep without a shepherd. So here the Savior of the Old Testament, to whom the whole Old Testament sort of prophesied and spoke and pointed, is standing in their midst and they don't recognize him. Why not? Well, no one had been preaching him. No one had been talking about him. Even though Jesus on the road to Emmaus is going to take the whole Old Testament from Moses on, show how it points to him. Yet here Jesus is on the scene and nobody knows because they really haven't been taught the word of God. And I fear we're never out of that danger as a church that if Jesus were to show up physically, bodily, and walk through these doors and be here among us, would we recognize him? I pray we would. (laughs) And that's why we're gonna preach Christ from the scriptures. That's why we're gonna preach his life and death and resurrection so that when he actually returns, we recognize him. We actually know who he is teach and care for the flock of God with the whole counsel of God, that is the primary work of overseers. It means feeding the sheep from this vast storehouse of Christ with the strength that the Spirit supplies. It means equipping the saints for the work of this gospel ministry so that we can all go out into the world with this message that we would all sort of teach, preach, minister, counsel Christ and him crucified as the redeemer and the savior of people. It means holding fast to the word that that never fails, who was spoken forth by this one who never lies and holding fast to it until that day where he returns and that God has appointed and given a certain order to the church and certain leaders over that church to ensure that that word is what is preached and taught. Which brings us back to the main point. The church belongs to God. A household and people over which Christ is head and king. And he has designed a certain kind of leadership for the church. 
and delegated that leadership to certain kinds of men and determined a certain way for those men to lead the church for the spiritual health and eternal good of the church. May the Lord help us. Let me pray. Father, as we prepare now to receive the Lord's Supper, may you use it, this image of the bread and of the cup as a remembrance of Christ, his body broken for us, his blood shed that our sin can be atoned for, that we can be reconciled to you, that we can be adopted into your family and into your household. And if there are any here, any man or woman who does not believe that, would you save them even now? Grant them eternal life in him. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, that you also would have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. That was the Apostle Paul's proclamation, or that's our proclamation, and we pray that our fellowship would be with you and you would just bring more and more and more to be your children in this household and help us to care well for one another. In Christ's name, amen.